Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and ecological crises that we face today. And they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Trevor Hilder. Trevor is an IT specialist who has also spent the last 30 years investigating and understanding how systems of organizations work, diagnosing their problems, and also figuring out how to rehabilitate them. Trevor worked with Professor Stafford Beer on this, on the viable system model. He also teaches this model to people and organizations who are looking to understand why their projects or systems are failing and how to create a resilient organization. And he joined me to explain the viable systems model, uh, how to apply it to organizations or even larger systems, and also to explain the morals that come along with that model. And yet again, this is another episode of Planet Critical that comes right back to value systems. But what I particularly enjoyed about speaking with Trevor is, well, not only was it great fun, uh, but this is about actioning value systems. So how do you build value systems into how you are actually building the systems of an organization or of a system itself? Honestly, this was such a fun episode, a little bit of a departure to what we maybe normally do on Planet Critical, a little bit of back and forth about free market and capitalism and about management theory. There is a lot to get out of what Trevor said. So I hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you love it, support the podcast at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. And to those of you already supporting this podcast, thank you so much. Excellent. Let's go for it. Well, then very quickly, before we slip right back into what we were saying, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical, Trevor. You're very welcome. <laughs> right. So we were just um, talking about the fact that you've been working from home since 1987. And during COVID, you saw the rest of the world finally catch up. And now, yep. of course, we're seeing uh, managers trying to get people back into the office to try yep. and protect their landlord friends' investments. Um, and you say that it's a failure of understanding management. Can you can you? Yeah. So 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 fundamentally, <clears throat> if you really think about what management should be, it is supposed to be a service to the people who do the real work. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> because because basically, when people come to work. The people who are delivering the stuff that counts, the stuff that people care about, don't have the the bigger picture of the cohesion of how this connects with everything else. Yeah, and the, mm -hmm. and management should be the service for creating the cohesiveness of the organisation to to achieve the bigger picture of what the organisation is there for to serve the clients. Yeah. And therefore, good managers get this and they understand that what they, what they have to do is to provide the resources so that the real work can get done. And it is therefore a service to the people who do the work. Because if the people do the work, don't do the work, there is no organization. It does not exist. Mm. You know, if I walk into a coffee bar, I don't care about the fact that there's a kind of supervisor lurking somewhere in the background, making sure that that doesn't, that's not what I think about. I think about the fact that there's somebody there to serve me and that they have at their fingertips, everything it takes to serve. 
And it's the manager's job to do that. But managers don't quite, a lot of them don't understand this. They think that they are there to push people around and boss them about and tell them what to do. There's a fundamental lack of understanding of the nature of good management. But the thing is that workers are now seen as replaceable um, in sort of, you know, the, the, the gig economy, especially that we have, um, which enforces a certain level of precarity, which means that a manager doesn't really have to care about its people, doesn't have to serve um, its workers, because if one of them starts speaking up or if they want to unionize, for example, we're seeing a lot of that in the States, you just get kicked out. Well, yeah, but of course that doesn't really work. It, 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 it's self-defeating. Uh, is it? Yeah. I mean, we're Put seeing corporations raking. Uh-huh. It, it's self-defeating. If, if the people running the organization remember what the purpose of the organization is, right? Mm-hmm. So, so there's a rather wonderful uh, a, a, a statement, a little slogan that, that Professor Stafford Beer, who's my, my mentor in management and cybernetics, he came up with this really interesting aphorism, which is the purpose of a system is what it does. Right. Now, hmm. let me sort of illustrate what that's supposed to mean. It sounds really like, what the hell does that mean? So what basically... If you think about what is the purpose of an organization, if you don't ask it, it will tell you certain things. Mm-hmm. And it will tell you, yeah, we serve the customer, we do this, we do that, we do the other, yeah. But if you want to know what the organizations really do, you look at the kind of feedback loops that it has in place, that it cares about, and it makes the measurements against to see what it's actually achieving. Because if it really cares about what it says the purpose is, you would expect it to have a kind of loops and feedback loops in place to to say, oh, how well are we doing? Uh, uh, yeah, in terms yeah. of what it says its purpose is, right? Yeah. But if you look at what the real feedback loops that are in place are, that tells you what the real purpose is, not what the stated purpose is. Yeah. Could you give some examples? Well, the example would be that if you notice the fact that uh, a certain corporation is completely fixated on making pronouncements and quarterly results, making the share price go up, mm-hmm. and, that, and that that's what they obsess about and that's what everybody in the, in the management are served with, it shows that the real purpose of the organization is to wrap the stock price and therefore to benefit the people who own the shares, including probably the managers who've got share options, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if you but, said to them, what is the purpose of your organization? They'd say, oh, our purpose is to serve the clients and so on. You go, well, yeah, but where are your metrics that show us that you are serving your clients? Which of these metrics are the ones that you think about all the time? Because if the ones that you think about all the time are, can I wrap the share price by buying back the shares and so on, the real purpose of the organization is to hand money to the people who own the shares. So this Absolutely. is why the idea of the purpose of a system is what it does is actually much more profound than it sounds because yep. it gives you a metric to see what the organization is really doing, not what it says it's doing. 
Is it possible for an organization to have any other purpose in a capitalist economy, a for-profit organization? Yeah, of course it is. I mean, the fact of the matter is that um, it's a matter of the balance of the different uh, aspects of, of management. I mean, if you look at the, the, the classic era of, uh, of successful economic growth around the, around the developed world after the Second World War, uh, the corporations were, they had to make a profit. In fact, they generally made more profit than they do now, rather than getting all sorts of weird subsidies from the state. Mm. Yeah. And, and what's interesting about that is that, you know, it, it used to be the case that they used to say that if you, if you bought a General Motors car and you got upset about it, you could pick up the phone and phone up. And if you insisted on it, you would talk to the chief executive officer. Mm. And the and, and the difference in salary between the chief executive officer and the ordinary workers was way lower than it is now. Yeah. And what people forget is that you can have successful capitalism. I've, I would have thought you could say that that a, a world of, of of economic growth that was spread amongst everybody at, at much higher rates of economic growth than we've had since the mid nineteen seventies, which is what we had between about nineteen forty five and nineteen seventy. Uh, that looked pretty successful, but it actually was an era in which marginal tax rates at the top rate were something like over 90%, which even the Beatles wrote a song about. Mm. They wrote a song called Taxman, and, and, and the Rolling Stones made a, a, an album called Exile on Main Street because they'd been forced to become textiles, tax exiles. Yeah. Mm. But, the, mm -hmm. but the, what's mm. interesting is that that huge tax rate on marginal uh, of a certain threshold of income was actually invented in America. Mm -hmm. So what mm -hmm. people forget is that the USA started the trend for these massive marginal tax rates of over 90, 80, 80 to 90% on very high earners. And everybody accepted that. And it was a standard thing and understood and not, nobody got upset about it. Uh, until uh, the mid-1960s when people like the Beatles started writing songs about it and the Stones had to, had to go into tax exile, which they didn't like it again because they couldn't get their marmite stuff, so they had to come home. But so, and of course, the pressure started to build to reduce those marginal tax rates on the argument that uh, talented people are being persecuted by, by the poor dears by only being able to earn a, a silly amount of money beyond that, the marginal tax rate was very high. Oh, how awful for them. Yeah. But it was still capitalism. Well, I don't think anybody would yeah. say there was no capitalism up until 1975. And it sure. worked better. And the irony is that, you know, hang on, you well, hang on. I don't think we can. Uh, sorry, we have to jump in here. And like, we're sure. taking a very localized look at this. I mean, capitalism worked well and economic growth worked well for, for whom? I mean, in the, the, as you said, in the developed world after World War II, it provided that economic proof and industrial, industrial boom as well um, yeah. that did massively increase quality of life and access to education, all this kind of stuff. However, yeah. it was equally through the plundering of resources of other countries, the continued plundering of resources uh, for not uh, fairly redistributing that wealth across the world. There were people that lost massively because capitalism sort of grew arms and legs and took on its... its new neo-colonial form. 
Uh, I think the assumption that, that, that other people were losing massively, I think the, the evidence is that they didn't get the benefits of that growth, but it is not necessarily the case that they were getting poorer. They weren't getting as much wealthier at the same rate as people in developed countries. They were not getting poorer. That That is a bit well, of a kind of... Are. For, for, for indigenous peoples, for example, in countries across the world that were losing their natural homes, such as their rainforests, uh, because companies were coming in and deforesting and exporting those logs into a globalized capitalist economy, they were getting poorer. They are still getting poorer today. I think it depends how you measure poverty or wealth. I mean, certainly the case that they, their culture was massively assaulted, but their culture would be under massive assault for about 500 years, uh, to a large extent, not necessarily conscious assault. So for example, if you look at, uh, the experience of, uh, of the population collapse in, in, in the Americas, the collapse of their populations was largely triggered by the fact that they didn't have any resistance to diseases that the Europeans thought brought, which of course, nobody understood. I mean, nobody knew what was going on. So if you, so if you were a, a, a traditional shaman or something in, in, in say, uh, the Amazon, this did actually happen that the, when the Spanish Catholics showed up the conquistadors in Latin America and the indigenous population started to die, they didn't know why they were dying. Many of the local spiritual leaders misunderstood the situation and thought that if they converted to Roman Catholicism, they would be okay because they thought, well, they're not dying of these diseases. It must be because they're Roman Catholics. So if we adopt their Christ Christianity, we will also not die. Yeah. And that's what happened. That's how, that's how Catholicism spread in Latin America. It was because the locals didn't understand what was killing them because nobody understood that you have to put this in the perspective of knowledge that was available at the time. People did not understand what was causing the natives to die out because they were ignorant about the, uh, they knew nothing about immunology or, 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 or uh, the immune system. They did not know what the causes were and they misinterpreted it and to a large extent. You know, Latin America is now Latin America by a ghastly accident of people thinking that if they converted to Roman Catholicism, they would stop dying of these terrible diseases. I'm sorry, they but didn't. I think that, that's, that's a gross oversimplification of the, the history of, of colonization. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's and... all the history. <laughs> that's not all the history. What I'm saying is, it is part of the history. I, I'm not trying to oversimplify. I'm saying you have to understand that it is the case that people, things happen and people don't understand what the hell is going on. It's not true that even the conquistadors and people like that knew what was going on. These things happen because nobody knows what's going on. I, I, I am a proponent of the cock up theory of history as much as the, the assumption <laughs> that there are bogeymen and evil people doing things. They often don't know what the hell they're doing. And, and it's still the case, you know, uh, so for example, the assumption that because you're earning vast amounts of money and you're a billionaire, that you've got a genuinely higher standard of living 
and people like you and me, I don't buy that at all. I think that you and I are more prosperous and have a better life than people who've got silly amounts of money, whose lives are ruined by it, and their kids are all horribly screwed up. I know, you know, I know this because they're having a terrible time because these things don't benefit them either. They, they don't. They're, they're having a ghastly time being taken over by, you know, addiction problems. I mean, look at Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. They don't look like they had a great life, did they? do they? Yeah? Sure. I mean, I think to be alienated from one's community, um, especially by being put on a pedestal or earning so much money that you're afraid people want to come and take it or whatever. Yeah, sure. I mean, we, but we have the sociological data on that. Like, more money doesn't necessarily make you happier. Sure. Um, and exactly. yet the problem is that we still have people that um, are driven to accumulate it and keep it for them, hoard it, essentially. And we need to start redistributing it. And a lot of those people who are like that are people who've come, who've come from traumatic childhoods and backgrounds where they feel the need to do that because they're actually traumatized by some event that happened to them when they were kids. It turns out, if you look at a lot of these entrepreneurs who are now embarrassingly more worth than is good for them, mm. many of them had a trauma of their father dying in childhood. It's extraordinary. Mm. It's actually is the case. So a lot of these people did not come from, you know, prosperous backgrounds when they were kids at all. Not some of them did, but not all of them. A lot of them came from desperate circumstances where they were traumatized by the death of a parent, particularly the father. I mean, that, that is the case of an astonishingly large number of successful entrepreneurs. Let's talk about uh, systems and the viable systems model, because yeah, what we sure. are seeing today is definitely a lack of understanding of the complexity of systems and how they interact. Yep. Sure. Um, the climate crisis is a systems problem, and that's why it's yep. incredibly difficult to, to attack it, to confront it. And yep. the general modus operandi is still to attempt to atomize systems into separate individual parts and fix those individually without then understanding the knock-on effect. Absolutely. Um, and you've been, uh, you said Professor Stafford Beer was your mentor. Could you give a little bit of quick background about, about his work and your work with him and then move into what, it, what is a viable systems model? Okay, that's great. So um, I, I, uh, I got into the IT industry uh, a, a very long time ago, 1974. Uh, so I'd graduated from university. I trained as a school teacher. I absolutely hated school teaching. And I had a school teaching <laughs> job that was driving me crazy in 1973. And I thought, I need to do something to stay safe. And I was living in London. And I was on an, on, on an underground train in London. And I saw a sort of, what, you know, those little ads along the, along the strip along the top that you see yeah. when you're standing up on the, on the underground yeah. trains? And actually, I saw one recently. It had a little puzzle. And he said, such and such, such and such equals question mark. If you can solve this puzzle, there is a career for you in computer programming. Sign up for this private college and pay us some money and we'll teach you to be a computer programmer. Yeah. Hmm. And I saw one of those when I was being driven mad by this terrible job that I had. And I went, ah. so I happened to be on my way to, I don't know, I was going to do something in Oxford Street or something. And the address was in, in, in Tottenham Court Road. Uh, and I walked into this place 
And I said, I'll oh, do this aptitude test. So I did this little aptitude test, I got 100%. Because actually I've gone to university to, to study physics. So I kind of, you know, right. why wouldn't I be able to do a simple aptitude test for a sort of simple logic puzzle? And so they said, yeah, pay us some money. You can study uh, COBOL programming uh, 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 in a hotel room on Saturday mornings. You know, I thought, well, that'll, that'll keep me sane while I have to put up with this <laughs> terrible job during the week. So I went and did this course and it, it got really more and more quick because in those days you program computers by writing on, on paper, writing on coding sheets. Uh, and then they got taken and punched onto punch cards, eight, 80 mm -hmm. column punch cards. And then the punch card disappeared somewhere and your program was, went somewhere mysterious. I mean, it came back mm -hmm. with a, with a kind of, uh, a load of paper wrapped around it. There was a kind of printout that told you what mistakes you made. Mm -hmm. And this was, this was computer programming. Punch cards, you know, the mainframe computers, rooms full of air conditioned equipment. Yeah. Um, it was like, that was what it was like. So I resigned from, I, I thought, oh, I like this. So I resigned from my terrible teaching job and finished the course full time in January, 1974, which was the kind of time where there were these massive strikes going on everywhere, a big economic crisis. So we would sit with kind of Caligas laps in a, in a dark room because there was no electric power filling in these coding sheets. It's like, <laughs> anyway, so, so I finished the course and, and because they knew I was a teacher, bizarrely, they offered me a job teaching. So I started my career. So the next week after I passed the exam, I was teaching the same course I'd been on. And that was how I got into computing. Right. <laughs> and then I kind of went through this weird kind of career of well, I, my only qualification is, is a, uh, a, a, a lousy uh, qualification in COBOL programming for mainframe computers. That's all, that's the only qualification I got in IT. But by 1983, I was in a, in a technology startup opening an office in Silicon Valley. So I was in Silicon Valley in 1983 in a technology mm. startup. And I, it was a kind of weird. So the whole thing was you could have this crazy career out of nothing because nobody knew anything about computing, right? Mm. Um, anyway, by the early 90s, I had done all, I had my own IT consultancy that I, I managed to get established. So that technology startup blew up in 1985 and collapsed. And, yeah, that, that was the nature of this business. You, you get the technology startup, it might blow up, it might die, it might crash, and it did. So, um, but I managed to fill up my consultancy uh, very successfully and make, make a lot of money. Um, but I got very frustrated. So by 1990, the early 1990s, I had a lot of money in the bank, but I also in my heart of hearts knew that most of the IT projects I got handsomely paid to work on would fail. Okay. They were failing. And I was okay. getting very embarrassed at being paid lots and lots of money for projects that don't work. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. this is awful. Somebody must know something about how to stop these things failing. And I realized that the failure was not anything to do with the technology. It was to do with the social organization. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I looked around and thought, who the hell knows how to solve this problem of the fact that 
we keep blundering because we don't organize ourselves socially properly. And I had a copy of a book that I bought back in the 70s sitting on a shelf called Platform for Change by a guy called Professor Stafford Beer. And I'd forgotten all about it. I took it down off the shelf. This was about 1982, 1983, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And I read this book and went, wow, this is amazing. And he published the book in 1975. And it was a series of lectures to people like people working in the NHS, senior managers in the NHS, uh, social uh, um, social work, social systems, uh, you know, social care, mm-hmm. uh, uh, chief constables of police forces all over the UK. And I thought, this is amazing stuff. I mean, this is really powerful stuff. Um, and, it, and he'd done the lectures in the early 1970s, right? And he was sort of saying things to the NHS, why have we got a national health service and a social service? Shouldn't they all be part of an integrated yeah. care service? Why have you got, you've got these separate organizations? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. I thought, whoa, you know. So I made a few inquiries and found out who was still alive because I, I knew nothing about the guy. I didn't know what he looked like. Uh, I just read, so I started to read his other books and thought, these are amazing. And I, and I tried to track him down for his publishers and they were so incompetent that they lost the letter that I wrote to them. And it took about a year. And suddenly I got a letter back from this guy, beautifully handwritten in a beautiful fountain pen. Oh, I'm t- sorry it's taken you so long to contact me. Um, you shouldn't have gone through widers. They are absolutely hopeless. You should have looked in who's who. I go, oh, really? Oh, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't I look in who's who to find out who Professor Stafford Beer is, you know? So eventually we met in 1994, and he was this kind of guru-like figure with a big beard and sort of teaching tantric yoga and all sorts of weird stuff. And I eventually found out that he had been a kind of captain of industry, smoking a big fat cigar and wearing a three-piece suit, driving a Rolls Royce. And... Mm -hmm. uh, living in a mansion in Surrey with a big family. Um, and then he'd suddenly renounced everything. And, and when I met him, he was living in a, in a, in a funny little shack, a little cottage in a disused quarry in the middle of Wales, <laughs> uh, meditating with sort of Sanskrit things. I thought, well, this, this is all very, very old, you know, and he put me in touch with the network. Bit. And I learned this guy, this guy was amazing. You know, that's the extraordinary character. So I learned this stuff from him and I didn't really, the first time I got a chance to reply, it was 1996 when I suddenly got asked to, to, um, to do the IT for, do you know about the spa stores, little spa shops? The, the spa, conven- yeah. Spa convenience stores. Yeah. Well, that the spa convenience stores, they are actually in terms of number of outlets, the biggest retail distribution chain on the planet. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, Are they only in the UK? No, they're all over the planet. They're everywhere. Right, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they started in, in, in the Netherlands uh, in the Great Depression. Mm. And they were kind of, they're kind of co- co- cooperatively organized because it was the only way to stay in business in, 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 in the Netherlands in the Great Depression. And then the model has spread all over the planet. It's really an interesting business model because it's quite cooperative in the way it's structured. Mm. So I, anyway, I got asked to form an IT team to 
because their IT systems in the UK, they were turning over two billion pounds a year in 1996. Like we're not a small outfit. No. And they had 2,500 stores in the UK. And their IT systems were a disaster. They had 24 separate IT systems. And the head office in Middlesex, you could fall over a cable and it would knock out the, the whole of the building and everything would stop, you know. It was chaos. And I, and, um, I got asked to head up an IT team to, to turn this thing around and rescue the business because everything was falling apart. Mm. And I thought, ah, oh, a chance to apply this stuff. Let's see whether this really works. And it was based on applying what is known as the viable system model, which is a, which is a model that says these are the functions that have to be operating to make any system viable, whether it be a mouse running around um, your kitchen, if you're unlucky, um, or it be an amoeba in its environment, or it be you sitting in your room, listening to me sitting in my room. It's what are the laws that make everything, make a system viable in its environment? How does that work? Mm. And it turns out, so Stafford Bear uncovered these laws by inventing what he called management cybernetics, starting right back in the 1960s. And he'd done those. When you say law, do you mean that these are like universal laws in the same way? Yeah, it's about universal laws. Law. It's like the laws of physics. So, right. so in actual fact, People, I don't know why everybody doesn't know about this stuff, because basically it turns out there is a set of laws that are like Newton's laws of physics for how organizations work and what, how they, what they need to do to be viable. And I don't know why everybody doesn't know it, because I have a course I do to teach this in a day, okay? And I've taught this uh, in India. Uh, I've taught it online to people in the Czech Republic and Chicago and, sure. you know, and, 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 it, and this stuff works. I mean, the, the upshot of it is that starting from nothing, we wrote a completely integrated, um, what is known as enterprise resource planning or ERP system for the spa supermarket chain from scratch without any packaged software. And we managed to do it in three years with a technology team of five people. Okay. Mm -hmm. So only five techies and a couple and, and a, a guy in the head office who was the kind of interim manager guy that looked after the budgets and things. Mm -hmm. So with a team of five people for a two billion pound a year turnover enterprise, we created a completely, a completely integrated management system, uh, in only three years using five staff. And we didn't tell the people in spa because they wouldn't have believed it, but we were all working from home. <laughs> and we did this between 1996 and 1999. <laughs> yeah. With only five staff. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and we got, we got an IT, um, lecturer, a lecturer at Warwick business school, a guy called Peter Kovalik, who is now a professor, Peter Kovalik, a visiting professor at Manchester business school. And also teaches at Loughborough University. He, I knew him, and he asked to come and do do some investigation of how we were doing our IT as part of finding best practice for how to do IT in the UK. And he nearly fell off his chair when he saw it because he said, and "We said, can you do a benchmark to show that 
how does this compare with other people in retailing throughout Europe? And the nearest project he could, could find, it had 74 staff on it. It was, it, it was implementing a thing called SAP, which is a pre-written package, German software package. And SAP is one of the biggest uh, companies in the world, even now. And it had taken 74 people five years to achieve less that we achieved with five people in the two years up to the point where he came and looked at the project, right? So, hey, guys, Let's, uh... <laughs> this stuff works. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Let's... I'm, uh, I'm not an IT person. I'm not sure how many of the listeners it are IT it, people. That doesn't matter. I don't... This is... But let's but let let's go into the this systems model. What are what are the laws? What are these universal laws of organizing? It, it, it is it is really simple. As I say, I have a course where I teach you in one day, and if anybody wants to know about that, I'm very happy to offer it because <laughs> we can do it online anywhere these days. Yeah, <laughs> great. So basically, there are five functions that enable any organization to be viable in the environment it finds itself in. So this is embarrassingly simple. I, and mm. It should be taught at school. Like, everybody should know this. I don't know how anybody thinks they can manage anything if they don't know this stuff because it makes your management capacity 10 to 100 times more effective if you do understand this stuff. Yeah. Why are they? Okay. So all they are is that... So I, I illustrate this from, from the ordinary and not very exciting illustration of, of what does it take to make, to, to make Starbucks work? Because everybody knows what Starbucks is. They might hate it, but everybody knows what it is and it's everywhere, yeah? So if I walk into a, 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 a coffee shop, I try and avoid them like the plague. I'd much rather use a local one. But yeah. but, but for illustrative purposes, it's yeah. a good illustration. I use it when I teach this stuff. So if you think about me walking into there and saying, I want a... a a chai latte or whatever the head is I want. Um, somebody's standing behind the counter delivering the goods. They're delivering what I care about. I'm the client. What do I care about? I walk into this place and there they are behind the counter and they do da 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 and they, hopefully they're not rude to me and they give me a, a, a chai tied latte and I'm happy. Although I'd much rather find one down the road at local interesting shop, but hey, maybe there isn't one. Um, there have to be operational staff. So there are operations. The operations are the elements of the organization that deliver the goods. They're what I care about as a client. Yeah. Guys working on production lines, making cars, um, you know, um, somebody's behind that counter and they do all this stuff. They've got a machine there. There's electric power and there's coffee beans or there's tea or whatever it is and they deliver to me and that's that's the operational aspect of the thing and Stafford Beer called that system one if that wasn't there you haven't got an organization it's what we it said at the labor. beginning of this conversation it's, it's people doing stuff the labor Op um it, it it's operational in the sense it's delivering the service so for example you're we're doing a podcast session here you're, you're the system one interviewing me. Mm -hmm. So you're delivering the podcast. And in fact, you're probably also doing the other four functions, because I kind of get a sense that this is a, an interesting thing that you're doing. And it has all these functions in it. 
they're not very many staff. Is that is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, oh, you're, yeah. so, so you're so you you interviewing me. Mm. If if you didn't interview other people and me, there wouldn't be anything there, would there? Mm-hmm. So that's the operational aspect of what's going on. Yeah. And staff a bit called that system one. Okay. Okay. Now, Happy, if you can, th- can I just can I can I just on the the. What is the difference between that and labor? Why not just call it labor? Could that operation okay, be a non-human re- element? Well, the reason for not calling it labor is because are you labor? Do you think of yourself as labor in, in your work? Oh, you good are. question. Do I think of myself but, as labor? I mean, I put yeah. in a lot of labor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But do you, yeah. do you think of yourself as labor? You think of yourself in that, in that yeah, way? Yeah, but I, I don't because think of myself are. as an operational element either. Yeah, but you are because because I, I mean we're try we're trying to be abstract here because for example mm-hmm. the vital system model works for me as a physiological being yeah yeah and it's, okay. it's for me as a physiological being operations of things like breathing my heart beating and circulating my blood uh, my liver working and my kidney working. Yeah. Okay, so these operations, this system one operations for everything. can also be it non-human works. elements. It it can be right. any system in the universe. It doesn't right. that's have why to be a human system. That's why it's not labor. Okay, gotcha. That's why, we, that's why we want to abstract the terminology because it works yeah. everywhere. You, okay. And say it, work, it works for a mouse running around it, 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 trying to find some food in my kitchen, which I hope is there these days, but it used to be. Um, it works for an amoeba swimming around keeping itself alive in a pond. These yeah. are universal rules, laws. Okay. So number one. So so system one is like the delivery of what matters to people who are providing, receiving a service. So So operations that deliver a service. Yeah. Operations that deliver a service. Now, if you think, if you think about that, if you think about the people working in that Starbucks, they, they're expected to turn up on time for a shift and then they go away and somebody else comes along. So somebody's coordinating that. Hmm. If they all turned up at the same time, all the staff all came in at the same time and then they weren't any staff for the next shift, that would be a mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there is a coordination function going on that is coordinating, making sure that the staff turn up for the right shifts and that they all turn up at the same time or they go to the longest branch of Starbucks instead of mm-hmm. the one they're supposed to be working at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what he calls system two coordination. So there has to be coordination to make sure that everything works together. Um, and for example, if we're thinking about, say, the way a school works, the classic uh, coordination function will be the school timetable that makes sure that, that the, class, the classes don't all turn up at the same classroom at the same time. The teacher is there and he knows what subject he's teaching and the kids know which books to bring. And, you know, so it, it's like a production plan in a, in a factory. It's like a uh, uh, timetable in there. And it's it, it's the it's the schedule uh, that is uh, of the shift shift schedule for a, a, a Starbucks uh, place, yeah. So there's coordination. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Um, a physics yeah. question. Isn't the sure. isn't the second law of thermo thermodynamics that the world tends towards chaos? Yeah. Sure. So how would that then apply? Like this system two of coordination. How would that then apply to a universe that tends towards chaos? 
That, that's a great question. And Stafford Beard, very insightful ideas about how light outwits the second law of thermodynamics. How do <laughs> we do that? So, so these functions, these five functions are the answer to your question. Right. Once, if all the five functions are there, we're alive and we're outwitting the second law of uh, this, making everything more disorderly and entropic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like a kind of dance that we perform. And these, these are the five functions that have to be danced to outwit that second law of thermodynamics. So when we finish, you'll see that, I think. Okay. All right. So there's stuff that delivers the goods. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's the workers. It's the people who, who, who do the craft work. There is a coordination function to make sure that things don't blunder and trip over each other. So we don't all, all end up, it's like, you know, you sent me an invitation to, to this podcast. That was an example of a system two function of us putting things in our calendar and both arriving at the same time so that we can talk to each other. <laughs> cool. Yep. And we did it. We got it right this morning. You know, <laughs> we organized it back in February, but Hey, we both turned up and here we are. Yeah. Okay. So the next function that has to be there is something that creates that cohesion to make sure that, that, uh, you know, it, it, if I was working in Starbucks, I would, you know, and I, and I like a simple life and they pay me enough money. I turn up for my shift. I'm nice to the customers because if I'm rude to them, they might say, they might get bad feedback and that would be bad news for everybody. Uh, nobody would like that. Um, and then I go away again and think, oh, I, I've got better things to do. As long as I'm getting enough money from that stupid Starbucks job, uh, I, I go and, I go and spend time with my mates at the pub and, and look after the people I love and do all the things that I really care about. Yeah. Mm. Um, but the cohesion of that, that this single store, the single Starbucks thing, there's some kind of supervisor lurking in the background. He's, he's got an office right at the back with a computer mm. and, 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 and you have to keep him happy if you want to keep carry on being employed. So that, that's a cohesive function to make sure that thing the dance works and nothing, nobody falls over and white kind of stuff. And that cohesion function is what you call system three. So it's part of that cohesion capitulating to seniority. Well, what he said was that it has certain levers of power that it uses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, he, and, and he describes this beautifully. And, and again, we go through all this in my little course. I mean, when I say it's a one-day course, I, it takes about two or three hours to teach this BSN thing in, in depth. Mm. Uh, and then I have another thing, which I call the moral modalities framework, which is about the morality that derives from this. Mm -hmm. And that takes another two or three hours to go through. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, I invented that, but Stafford Beer invented the vital system model. Okay. So, so basically the system three function, how does it constrain people? How does it manage the magic of making sure that you do turn up for your shift on time? And he said it produces, it uses something called a resource bargain. I, I, I contract to pay you only if you turn up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's what he called the resource bargain. The resource bargain is how, how the power is wielded effectively. That mm. I say, if you turn up and do this and do this, I guarantee that you will get paid X amount at the end of the week or the end of the month. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In exchange for that, 
you have to account for your actions. So if you don't turn up on time and you consistently don't turn up on time, I get really hacked off and I fire you eventually. This is, this is super conservative. This is a super conservative viable systems model. Because, no, no, I mean, no, no. Well, it's about it's, how it's about how things work. It's how human beings are. It's well, not a concern. It's got nothing. No, no, it's not conservative at all. That isn't bar, the case. Resource it's just how, yep. Yeah, but that's how. If it, 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 I, would you go? Would you? Would you think people will come and work in in Starbucks if they were going to get paid? I mean, they just, of course not, gonna... not Starbucks. But the the thing that I'm thinking of that is quite interesting is all of the recent data that's come out where they've trialed a universal basic income in communities yeah, yeah, yeah. and giving yeah, sure. people access to resources then encourages the, their entrepreneurship, their creativity. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, you yeah, don't need yeah. to bargain with people for their kind of, you know, minimum wage existence like that. That doesn't seem yeah, to but, actually but create a cohesive system. You, well, you haven't, you, wait a minute, I'm only using Starbucks as an example because we all understand Starbucks. Mm-hmm. I am doing loads and loads of really interesting work with, for example, a platform co-op revolutionizing mm -hmm. how social care works. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so don't, don't get too fixated on the example that we're using. Well, but, it's not, let, I mean, let's, even let's just, finish it. Let's finish it just the way it's finished. Finish when we got to five, five functions, <laughs> we, 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 we've done three already, right? <laughs> so what, so what all it is basically saying is that somebody has got to create this cohesion. I'm not saying that I like, I told you, I, I you know, if I can avoid going to the Starbucks, I will, but if I'm desperate for a cup of coffee and I'm trapped in an airport or something, and there isn't anywhere else to go, I'll go, you know, and they're going to write my label, the cup and <laughs> but we're just talking about how these things work. We're not saying it's good, bad, and indifferent. It's saying this is how it works, because it is. Yeah? So in the modern world, we do use money to create social conformity. Now, mm. I am very interested in reinventing money to get us out of certain traps, okay? Which is why I'm interested in things like cryptocurrency projects and things like that. Because I'm interested in the reinvention of money to make it less punitive. But that's another story we can talk about once we finish talking about what these functions are, because we've nearly mm. finished actually. Okay. <laughs> so so there is a resource bargain and there is accountability. It's also important that the bigger environment imposes on those on that cohesion management function. It's what we normally call management, but you call it cohesion because it it kind of describes what it should be, yeah. Um, that system three function also has to make sure that the fire regulations are, 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 are there. So the environment imposes regulatory requirements and makes sure that health and safety and the fact that you don't poison your, your customers with, with milk that's gone off and what kind of stuff. So there are regulatory things that have to be complied with. Fire, fire safety standards, health and safety, that kind of stuff. There is the resource bargain that says, look, I'll offer you this if you if you offer to turn up, be part of my plan, my grand plan of, of putting money in the pockets, in the pockets of Starbucks shell, or whatever it is. Um, and then there's accountability that you have to account for yourself. You have to show that you did turn up. And, and, and all that's going on, yeah? 
But in the background, there is some higher level of management. So this individual Starbucks store is, a, is reporting that the guy who does that supervision, day-to-day -day supervision, is reporting on some kind of basis, the sales and everything else, to some higher level of management somewhere in head office somewhere. So there might be a kind of regional office. If I'm in Trowbridge and it's got Starbucks, there's probably some, there's probably a regional office in Bristol that the guy who runs the Starbucks, uh, the, the Starbucks in Trowbridge reports to. So there's a level up, up of management above that, the level of the individual store. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and that's how, that's one of the things that's important is the nature of the world is that viable systems are nested inside other viable systems. It's recursive. You've got levels. Yeah. So we know that Starbucks has got a head office somewhere and it's got an advertising department that's produced that annoying logo that everybody recognizes. So that you, you, you recognize, go, oh, it's a Starbucks. I'll go and get a cup of coffee instead of, oh, I'll go and get my shoes repaired there or whatever, you know, that would be kind of dumb. Um, so there's another function that's important. So, so we can have those functions working and we have a happy Starbucks store. Coffee arrives, it gets put in the storehouses, the refrigeration systems, electric power, the bills get paid so the electric doesn't go off. Uh, it, it, all, it all kind of works on a day-to-day -day basis. But the world, the bigger picture of the world is constantly evolving. The world is evolving all the time. And that means that if you had a, all that stuff running, but suddenly people go, oh, I can't drink, I, I can't drink dairy milk. I demand that my co coffee has got oat milk in it. Well, that didn't used to exist. And if Starbucks had not bothered to adapt to the fact that certain people want chai latte and certain people want oat milk in their coffee instead of dairy milk, or they want it semi-skewered or whatever, they will go out of business because people wouldn't go there anymore because they weren't making the drinks that they liked. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in order to, for, for, it, for it to be viable as an organization, it has to be able to evolve in response to changes in its environment. And that, that's and number that, four. That's system four, the intelligence function that enables it to adapt as the world unfolds. So that's the system four intelligence function. The, the, the thing that makes that interesting, it has to look to the big, big wide world outside and say, hey, what we're doing today is fine, but suddenly there's this new thing coming up. Like there's, hey, people want chai latte. That didn't even exist five years ago, maybe. I don't know. Or it only yeah. existed in, in some obscure corner of the world. So there has to be an intelligence function. That's system four. Yeah. If it wasn't there, the business would go bust because it wasn't adapting to its environment. Um. And then finally, the only other function that has to be there is what was called system five, which is the function that is about the identity of the organization and what its policies are and what makes it different to any other organization in the world. Mm -hmm. So it's about identity. It's about who are we? Uh, what is acceptable as the value system that, that makes us who we are and how, and preserving that integrity, that's where the buck stops. That's kind of like, you know, President Truman 
of the USA had signed it. They're saying the buck stops here, which means he's ultimately responsible for anything to do with the USA. I know Donald Trump believed that, but that's because he didn't know what the job was. You know, that's, that's an example of purpose of a system is why it does. They're forgetting that, oh, he managed to become president, but did, without even bothering to find out what being president even does, means. Yeah. So that's, that's why the USA is in a crisis because it's lost the kind of sense of what, what's the purpose. Yeah. So the system five function is about what is the purpose? What is our identity? What makes us different to anybody else? And those are the five functions. It's really, really simple. Yeah. But as we said, it's also recursive because all organizations are nested inside other ones. So at one level, the system one operational stuff, if you looked inside that, it is a self-viable system at the next level down. So the world is full of recursion and it's full of newly emergent systems that weren't there before. And the evolution of the world shows that new viable systems at a new higher level of sophistication emerge constantly. So, you know, we didn't have the internet um, in 1995, 1996, when I was doing that project. The internet has emerged as an emergent system and a viable system that is now across the whole world, enabling us to talk to each other and do this. Yeah. Does mm -hmm. that, does that all make sense? Yeah, it does. I think I find it interesting that you use the Starbucks example, because Starbucks, um, from what I've read about management theory, Starbucks is one of the few companies in the world that is using this new model that I'm not going to be able to remember the name of, um, but essentially it's like teal management theory. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it, Ken Wilber's integrated yeah. uh, what, what integrated management, uh, teal and yeah, 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 and yellow yeah. and all so, this stuff. Yeah, yeah. So that, is that spiral dynamics? That spiral using? dynamics. That's what it is. Ah, spiral dynamics. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, and I find that really, really interesting because the to anybody that hasn't heard of it, the, what that system does essentially is they hire when they're hiring people. It's not for a specific role. They're looking for a certain skill set. And then they hire the, uh, folk who have the most adequate skill set for what they are already missing in the team. And then leadership will change within a group and different people will work together. And there's not these siloed departments. It's like somebody from accounting will work with somebody in the creative department to get a job done. So it's all goal oriented. And during yeah. a project, different people will take over at different times, depending on who is yeah. most knowledgeable about. Yeah. And that to me seems like a very, very dynamic system. Yeah. Um, and very much kind of how we need to move forward, you know, politically well, what, and with organizations. Yeah, but what a shame that all it is is a chain of coffee shops. I mean, why get so excited <laughs> about something so utterly trivial? You know, I mean, like, couldn't. Could this be applied to something more useful than just a bunch of annoying coffee shops that are you, taking you know, business away from the I local know. coffee shop? You know, I, mean, I like, know, I know, I know. But how interesting! Still, nonetheless, them at Southwest Airlines is another company that uses this as yeah, well. Yeah. I was really yeah. shocked to see, and I wonder what the value system is of their uh, upper management that they would kind of go to that, go to those lengths well, to update well, and evolve. Well, the point about this is, see that if you look at at the history of big corporations. I mean, if you think about the US, I mean, the US corporation, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a history buff. I find history super interesting. Mm 
And one of the things I learned, somewhat to my surprise quite recently, from a brilliant documentary by a guy called Ted, Ken Burns. I don't know if you've come across Ken Burns. I haven't. Ken Burns is a, is a brilliant documentary maker, American mm -hmm. documentary maker. Uh, he's so brilliant, he even invented uh, uh, a particular way of uh, doing a shot called the burn, I think they call it the burn shot, the burns thing. It, it's a way of using static images and moving around inside them. He invented that as a oh, technique fab. to make a documentary interesting. The guy's yeah. brilliant. In fact, I recently watched a documentary about the history of Benjamin Franklin, and it was a masterpiece. So interesting. But he did a great documentary series about the Civil War, the American Civil War. Uh, one of the things that I found super interesting about it was I had not realized until I saw that documentary, and he didn't mention this, that it was the US, the, the North fighting the Civil War that actually invented the military industrial complex. Oh, really? <laughs> so if you look at the way that, that, that the North won the Civil War, you, it instantly recognizable as being the military industrial complex that now spread across the whole planet. It started in the 1860s as a method of winning the Civil War, and now it's like spread like a rash across the planet. Really? So, so these these things unfold over very long periods of time, and and, the, and, the, and and that's also the beginning of the U.S. corporation because yeah. the U.S. corporation, how it works, it did come out of that military-industrial complex. Well, let's let's it, let's touch on that quickly because yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously our systems are malfunctioning, and cor yeah. co corporations are whatever their purpose is. It is not working for the wider world, and it's yeah, yeah, the yeah, entire yeah, planet absolutely. in danger. Sure, what yeah, happened, yeah. and how do we how do we solve that? The answer to that is a lot of that is to do with people not understanding how to keep the organization alive with the stated purpose. But what if the stated purpose is only a PR trick and actually yeah, the yeah, real but purpose? No, no. You know. no, no, that's the point I'm making. That yeah. thing about the purpose of a system is what it does. Yeah. It's very important. So what it basically is that it's the problem you get is that human beings, human beings, human beings, and this applies to all human systems. It also applies to the history of religions, for example. Uh, how they go from an inspiring, uh, profound thing based on deep personal experience and turn into these ghastly power structures. It's the same story. Mm. So basically, human end organizations are prone to go from being inspiring, driven by a, a, a higher purpose, to becoming a power system, usually overseen by a load of old blokes. Yeah, we get yeah. co-opted. Oh, you know, like old blokes like me, you know. <laughs> Boring old white blokes, but they, they're not always white. It equally applies to um, to ghastly power freaks um, throwing their weight around. It doesn't matter what color their skin is. It happens all over the planet, yeah. obviously. So that, the yeah. idea that some special quality of, of white people and Europeans is ridiculous because if you look at the real history of the world since the dawn of civilization, it's mostly dominated by arrogant aristocrats who spend most of their time fighting wars against each other. Yeah. Um, which we hopefully can get away with. I know that Vladimir Putin loves it and he's doing, he's reproducing the same pattern, but we've, 
we'd rather get away with that than that if we could. But the problem, so this is why I teach this moral values stuff, because it's about the moral dimension of this stuff. Hmm. I don't think we've probably not got time to go into that at this point, maybe. But but it's 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 a it's a five-dimensional moral philosophy that, that is five, works on the same principles of the viable functions that exist. All right, can we run through quickly in like ten minutes? Yeah. So what? Right. It, so it's got a little grid diagram, which which I can't really. It, it's on my Web of Wealth website. If you go there, you will find that it's a it's it's a sort of boring looking spreadsheet thing mm. with three three levels of recursion from personal stuff to work stuff to pub, the public sphere. And then it's got five columns in it that are the moral modalities. Mm-hmm. And they correspond to the five functions in the viable system model. Mm-hmm. So the system five identity one, I call that guardianship. It, it, it's about create the boundary and saying who we are and what our value system is and keeping that straight and se- separating that from other things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, so I, I illustrate it with the game of tennis. So if, if you know the game of tennis, you know there's a thing called the Lawn Tennis Association of Wimbledon. And they define the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. That's a kind of guardianship function. It says, look, if you want to play tennis, if you don't follow these rules, you aren't playing tennis, you're doing something else. So we are the guardians mm-hmm. of the rules. We, if you want to play tennis, we tell you what the rules of tennis are. And that's not some ghastly thing because you don't have to play tennis. Yeah. I mean, like, maybe say, you must play tennis. Or, you know, so that's the guardianship function as a perfectly healthy kind of a thing. Yeah. That the conditioned hierarchy thing is the name I give to the system three, which is a power trip. It's what we were talking about, which you were upset about the idea of a resource bargaining and wielding yeah. power over people. So it's when we fall into a kind of power system with prestige figures at the top and people in the middle and people at the bottom who, who are the people doing the real work and they don't, they don't, they, 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 they're being, they feel they're being imposed upon by this power structure. Yeah. So that's what I call conditioned hierarchy where people get conditioned into the alarm clock goes up, goes off, you wake up, you commute to work, you're sort of, you're not really kind of awake, you're kind of, you turn up at work because you know you have to, because otherwise there won't be any money in the bank at the end of the month and you won't be able to pay your mortgage. Yeah, it's precarious. It's, mm-hmm. it's the power stuff. So we have the guardianship, which is perfectly legitimate, saying, say, look, I'm trying to inspire something here and you can join it if you want to. And this is what it is. That's, you know, and that's cool. But then it, these tend to fall into and turn into nasty power structures which I call conditioned hierarchies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but isn't that because? Sorry to interrupt, but isn't that because this is quite an aristocratic moral framework in itself? No. Because well, because it's the people at the top essentially who are creating what vision and inspiration, and they are the guardians. And then it's yeah. very much a top-down morality. Like what? What about creating no, it's uh, not. morality no, 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 that the, comes from no, the operations? Yeah, but hang on. These are f- these are functions. Uh huh. That it is not a it's not a power hierarchy, so so that so for example, your podcasting series, what makes people want to watch it, is it stands out as having a value system. That's you being the guardian of it and saying this is what it is, but you're not exerting power because you're not forcing anybody to watch it or listen to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I'm and not there's nothing an organization wrong with... either. Yeah, but you are. You are an organization. Okay, but I'm not an organization You're... working in tandem with other people. No, but you are just a... But, but the functions are still the same. Sure, but my point is that if it's upper management that is deciding the value system and yeah, the identity and the purpose... It, but the answer to that is it doesn't have to be. Right, because, okay. Because, because, the, because a good organization creates an ethos that everybody shares yeah mm -hmm. so there's a famous story about when they were when 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 they when president kennedy decided that they're going to land on the moon in 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 by by but in 10 years which is an extraordinary thing to do and there's a famous situation where kennedy was actually visiting this this might be apocryphal but it it illustrates when this is good when it works properly yeah uh and he saw somebody, somebody sort of sweeping the floor and he said, hey, what are you doing? He said, I'm landing men on the moon. <laughs> oh, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's when it works because mm. everybody's sharing a value system to do something they all care about together. Yeah. But it could also come from the bottom up. Like this could also apply to a collect, like spark collective model. Yeah, Where yeah, it's yeah. the workers, for yeah. example, that decide the value system and the purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. I'm, in other words, it's not, it, a lot of people misunderstand this and think it's some kind of horrible power thing. Uh, it is, it's, a, it's, about, it's about what it takes to, 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 to manage what we call variety. Mm. It's about what we call variety management. I won't go into that, but, okay. but it's, it's okay. about the fundamental law. So, so what happens is it, it's a very big issue for the world at the moment of people confusing this, this legitimate guardianship function of, for example, the NHS is, is a classic thing where people get the value system and, and volunteer to do amazing things because this is our health system. You know, we all own that. Mm. You know, you, did you see the, the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympics in London? No, I didn't. Uh, you should have watched it. It's very cool because it's got a whole section of people celebrate the NHS. It, it was done right. by Dan, Danny Boyle wrote it. He wrote the script right. and it's amazing because it's about who, what, what, what is Britain about? And it's got this thing in it with people dancing around the NHS beds. It's completely bonkers, but hey, yeah. <laughs> but the NHS is an example of yeah. something that's got a value system that we all care about, that we feel is ours, that we celebrate that. That's good guardianship where we all share that value system. Yeah, and that is not a power power system, mm -hmm. but it, but in order to organize it, there has to be some kind of condition hierarchy thing to run it to make it work on the ground to okay. co to co to create that cohesion so the volunteers are not all doing stupid things that don't coordinate properly and stuff like that. I would also assume that um, that conditioned hierarchy would be useful when coming up against the attacks of sort of monolithic power structures such as yeah. Tory governments. Correct. Or, or, for example, the Ukrainians facing the, the, the invasion of, of, of the Russians. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And, and when that happens, you have to have some kind of conditioned hierarchy of discipline and why have you. Otherwise, nobody would know how to defend themselves. It has to be structured in a, in a manner which has got a power element to it. You know, you have to accept that if you're in the army and, and you, you need to, you need, you need to base of orders. Otherwise nothing's going to work. Hmm. There's quite a, there's quite a lot of a guerrilla type kind of 
thin aspect to the Ukrainians at the moment, which is fantastic. Mm. But there has to be a conditioned hierarchy with the resources being delivered. You know, those guys need ammunition to, to, to fend off those attacks. Mm. Uh, people, they need food. It has to come from somewhere and there has to be a resource bargain to deliver it. Is it what, where these things go wrong is when these things aren't kept in proper balance. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, the, the, so the exchange modality is the system two stuff, which is really about kind of like bargaining uh, without a power aspect. Uh, you've got something I like, you, I got something you like, let's do a deal. This is, this is where, you know, uh, uh, people, it, it's free market economics, which is much rarer than it, than it pretends to be. It should be there, but it is, but hey, that's another story. Mm-hmm. And then, the, and then, the, and then there is a, the learning network modality, which is all about, um, the evolutionary function of learning. And then there's the, what I call the unconditional care modality, which is the fundamental one without which everything else doesn't work. So unconditional care is people being human and doing things for each other without expectation of reward. It's, it's like, you know, bringing up the kids, you know, you don't expect the kids to pay, pay the bills, you know? So there's the unconditional care, which is like the system one real stuff. There, there's the guardianship, which is who are we? Uh, what are our, what's our value system? system? Five. There's the conditioned hierarchy power kind of element to keep on keeping on. How do we keep this thing working? And then there is the, uh, uh, the exchange modality, which is sort of exchanging things without a power element. And there is the learning network, which is about how do we evolve into the future. Right. So Let there are just, there um, are moral there are moral dimensions, but if you get them muddled up, you get what I call a monstrous moral hybrid. A monstrous mm. moral hybrid is where you say you're doing one of these things, mm. but you're really doing one of the other ones. Mm. Like, Let me just you, do that in order yeah, for people yeah, listening. Yeah, yeah, Number one yeah. is unconditional care. Number two is exchange without power. Number three is conditioned hierarchy. Number four yep. is the learning modality. And number five is guardianship. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so what I do when I'm thinking about it in moral terms is talk about how does it feel and where does it go wrong? And, and this idea of monstrous moral hybrids is where you should be doing the guardian thing, mm. but you're not. You're doing a power trip when you're pretending you're the guardian. Yeah. You're, that's what we call a monstrous moral hybrid. The term comes from a brilliant lady called Jane Jacobs, who's mostly famous for town planning. I don't know if you've heard of Jane Jacobs. No, I haven't. She's the woman that revolutionized town planning by, by refusing to allow Greenwich Village in New York to get bulldozed to build a motorway. She came up against a, a guy called Robert, um, oh, I forget the guy's name. There's a, there's a play just come out about the tension between the guy who wanted to shove motorways through through New York and Jane Jacobs, who sat in, in Greenwich Village and stopped into bulldozing it and, and transformed town plan. But she also wrote this book called Systems of Survival, where she mm. talked about monstrous moral hybrids. Fantastic. Where, and that was with reference to the fact she was living in Toronto and there was a thriving textile industry in Toronto and it got completely destroyed by the mafia demanding protection money. So the mafia is an example. They say, oh, nice, nice place you got here. A bit shame if it burnt down, wouldn't it? Um, maybe you could, we, you could pay us to protect you against that. Yeah. That's a classic example of a conditioned hierarchy pretending to be a guardian. Mm-hmm. It's a mafia ploy saying, well, you know, 
We wouldn't like anything unfortunate out of this, but it's <laughs> then that we're going to do the unfortunate thing. That's a classic monstrous moral hybrid. And to a large extent, the, the, the stuff about the exertion of illegitimate power that you're describing is an example of a monstrous moral hybrid. Mm. Yeah. But then how, how do you rehabilitate a system that is experiencing or has become a monstrous moral hybrid? What you have to do is reconnect it back to separate the, 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 the modalities from each other properly. You have to say, hang on, you're forgetting what we're here for. You've, you've forgotten the real purpose. You've got disconnected from the deep purpose. You've turned this thing into an illegitimate power structure. You, you mustn't do that. You have to reconnect it with its real purpose. But surely there are systems and organizations that are beyond that rehabilitation because it's been yeah, either, I, yeah. you know, and they're, not, and they're not viable systems and they're going to die. That, that's, that's what happens. They might kill us first, though. Well, that's the risk. The risk <laughs> is, yeah, the risk is that, 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 that they might kill us first. I agree. Yeah. I, I'm not disputing that. <laughs> no, no, that's, but they're not viable. And the reason yeah. they're not viable is because they've, they've not got a proper uh, learning network modality. They haven't got proper learning capacity anymore. Mm. They've forgotten to evolve. I mean, the, I mean, the Russian Ukrainian thing is an incredible demonstration of this. Is that the Russians believed, and, and Putin does believe this, it comes from the Russian history. He believed that Ukraine was not a real nation state, it was a fake nation state. Donald Trump agreed with him, of course. Mm. And it was a fake state that is really only part of greater Russia. And Putin's narrative is that he has to save it from <laughs> Nazism. And it's just like, yeah, right. Uh, he's got, yeah, he's I dreaming know. of the second world war. Yeah. And what he yeah, hasn't I noticed know. is that the only Nazis involved here are, it, are him and his forces. Yeah. So he hasn't realized that he's, he's, he's celebrating Victory Day, the day that, 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 that Nazism collapsed, mostly conquered by the Soviet Union, because they did all the, all the, all the late work. They really won the war. But there they are marching around in a jackbooted fashion, looking like a, a, a Nuremberg rally. But mm. they think that they are the people who saved the world from fascism. They haven't noticed that they are fascism. Well, I, I mean, think, I mean, it just sounds like a line that. I, I don't think he genuinely believes that he's he does. Going to save Ukraine no, no. from Nazism. I, I think you, no, no. I think you're quite wrong. I think he really does believe that. He really, really does believe that, and that's what's scary about it. He's not cynical about that. He's got a version of history where he actually does believe that. So what he hasn't realised is that Ukraine is a real nation state, and Russia is dying. And the sign that Russia is dying is that the Russians believe that crazy stuff. Hmm. The danger is that while they're dying, they might start unleashing nuclear war, which we would prefer them not to. Please yeah. don't save us. Please don't save us from Nazism. Thank <laughs> you for the offer, but we'd rather you did. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor. <laughs> I feel like we've only just begun to scratch the surface, but we are out of time, I'm afraid. Okay. <laughs> but what a fab, what a fab note to end on. <laughs> this stuff is real. This is real stuff and yeah, it works. Yeah. 
Yeah. People right, need okay. to know about this. Yeah, cool. So where can people learn more about it? Where can they sign up to do your course if they're interested in it? Okay. Um, I've got a, a, web, a, a website called Web of Wealth. There is a sort of comment section in there. And, and anybody that would like to put a comment in there, I, I would love to put, uh, ask about the course. If they contact me and give me contact details, I will send them how the course works, how All it's right. organized. Assume it's going to take a, 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 a around right about sort of like a day of time in two sessions. We can be flexible along when they are. And what I do is I only teach the course to small groups of people who are working together. Right. Because that makes it special. It makes it for them. It's mm. not for everybody. I'm not interested in teaching people who don't want to know. Mm. I only do this for people who want to work on this, do real work. Okay. My final question then is, who would you like to platform? Okay. You've already got Chris Cook on board, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. Have you talked to Emma back? No, I haven't. Equal Care Co-op? No, I haven't. You should. We're, we're doing fabulous work together to transform social care in the UK and also ultimately across the world. Fab. Can you introduce me to her in an email? Yeah, of course. Great. Wonderful. Trevor, thank you so much for your time. It was delightful speaking with you. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. If you want to learn more about the viable systems model, I've put links to Trevor's website and his email address over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked the episode, leave a review and share it. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on the Planet Critical Patreon page. A huge thank you to the Planet Critical community, without whom this work just would not be possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.